right, friends, we are now at number 312, Conversations with Yogananda. So, it's a very interesting one, and I don't know, we'll sift to see what happens. Evolution, the Master said, is only a suggestion in the mind. Whatever that means. It's only a suggestion in the mind. Everything in reality is going on in the present tense. In God's consciousness, there is no evolution, no change, no progress. It is always and everywhere the same one reality. I don't know what aspects of things, I I think partly Swami doesn't elaborate on it, sort of like you have to perhaps just meditate on it, whatever it means. Um, There are certain aspects to evolution that it's it's better, I mean, there's, there's more clear ways to think about it than the way people are always trying to make you think about it, that, you know, the the fish gradually becomes the turtle and then the turtle becomes the, the puppy or whatever like that by some kind of accidental combination of primarily survival. Master did say that when they were trying to say that the human being evolved out of the ape and they were always trying to find the transition point when the ape you know, sort of became human Master said categorically that they will never find what they called the missing link he said because it doesn't exist um, and he spoke about man being a special creation of God and that's of course the story of the Bible that he made all the beasts and then he made Adam and then he made Eve which are fables but they're fables that are based on on some actual uh, perception of truth that couldn't be articulated in words and had to be translated into some kind of symbolic form I I had a, a picture of what that's like it wasn't words but it was visual when I was in uh Calcutta for one of our pilgrimage trips there and it was the Kali Puja and every little neighborhood group as you went through town the neighbors had gotten together and they would put up an altar usually just sort of half in the street half on the sidewalk with some elaborate uh, murti of Kali and Kali can be quite uh, Confusing if you if you're trying to look at it literally, because she's kind of fierce looking with this wild hair and her red tongue, and she has a garland of skulls and she has a sword in her hand and she's holding a severed head. She has four arms, I believe. It's it's you look at it. It's not like from the Western point of view. It's not how we like to see our deities. Insofar as we like to see them at all, we don't like them to look like that. And I, who am a little more at ease with it all still it was just kind of crazy just place after place and we were on the street walking somehow our our crowd of 30 some people and the street was also crowded and we may have been stopped for some reason we were stopped for some reason I don't remember why but I remember the crowd kept pushing me and I kept backing up until I was finally right up at the edge of one of these altars and I didn't know it till I was really close. And then I turned and there was the statue was like here. So all of a sudden I'm just looking at 
this deity and it's blocking out all other images. And it was just so weird. I sort of, in an instant, I said, who are you? Like that. Just like, what is this? Because I have too much respect for the whole tradition to just discard it out of Western prejudice. But I couldn't pretend to have any idea what I was really dealing with. And what happened to me in that moment, because well, among the two things that she has is one hand has a sword and it's just going to cut you to pieces, and the other is offering a boon. And of course the, the garland of skulls, which for some reason I rather like that. That doesn't, I enjoy that part of it. Um, but when she was sort of like there, like this, ready to kill me and to bless me simultaneously, it occurred to me, yeah, I get that. Life is a lot like that, isn't it? You feel like you're being killed and blessed at the same time on a pretty steady basis, or it certainly happens either alternately or simultaneously, quite regularly. And what I, what I comprehended, because everything has... Uh, a human instrument. Everything in the human world has a human instrument. It's not, um, it's not like Kali just emerged from nowhere. There was a, 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 a transmitting consciousness of some great sage who understood something and presented it. In, in our little lifetime, the joy symbol, which is on our altar and also on our wall here, Swamiji saw that in a superconscious vision. He, he asked Master to give him a symbol for Ananda that was meaningful but also simple. And then he saw that. And then he had to draw it. He said he drew it about 80 times because the lines were very subtle. And he, and he kept trying to draw what he'd seen until he finally got it just so. And he felt he'd replicated it as much. And then afterwards... He explained all of the symbolism. The mountain peak at the bottom is the rising aspiration and then soaring up joyously into the infinite, but then returning again to bless the world. And it's all this huge thing, but he didn't think any of that. He just saw it. He, he, he wanted something that would speak symbolically of who we are. And, th and then he saw it. Well, what I realized looking at Kali is, of course, some great sage... Um, either saw, saw it, saw her manifested, or felt the reality of it and then translated it into some visual form. But it wasn't, it wasn't reasoned. It was perceived on some level and then put forward like that. And so when you, when you go back into it, and Swamiji has in his book The Hindu Way of Awakening, um, of which I have an audio class on the Palo Alto website. It's a very, very interesting class. Um, he, he analyzes that statue at great length, but it wasn't put together by some sage making a list of all the things he wanted to represent and then sort of building a statue from the bottom up. He saw the reality of it, either literally or symbolically, felt the energy of it and then translated it. In some context, Master said essentially that the gods and goddesses are positions that are held in turn by different souls, sort of like the king of England, where there's always a king of England, but different people are the king of England. 
He said that about Indra and others of the gods. Isn't that an interesting thought? I don't think he expanded on it more than that. But so Kali, somebody gets to be Kali, I guess, at some point, or gets to be Shiva. Um, It's way beyond me to even think about it, but it's interesting to think about because these are living realities. So was she there first or did the sage perceive the energy? In, in, the, in the highest ages where people are able to experience these things directly, do these symbols simply disappear? Um, Sri Ramakrishna in the 1800s um, was a c- complete devotee of the mother and a lot of his more uh, intellectual Western trained disciples didn't have as much respect for that side of it but repeatedly he demonstrated from his own experience that these were living realities. These were not myths, and they were not crutches. They were, they were truths. So there it all is. So back to what he was saying about evolution, is, is that it, it okay, I, I di- digressed a little bit, but the part I was wanting to say was, in, I believe it's somewhere in the Raja Yoga course, it's just a couple of sentences that, I only noticed about 25 or 30 years after I'd been first read the book. But he was talking about the process of reincarnation. And what Swami said is we manifest a body that allows us to express the full potential of the consciousness that we have at that time. And inasmuch as animals are actually individual, individualized jivas, because Master said, he remembers himself all the way down to the level of a diamond. So at that point, apparently, you begin to individualize. But your karma, Master said, is more or less group karma. And your, your, he, he used the word evolution, but we have to think about how, what, what he meant there. Your progress through the various stages of gradually increasing awareness is not under your control. You're just sort of moved up with your batch, I guess. I don't exactly know how you would think about it. (laughs) You and your batchmates who were lizards together and then you become whatever you become. I really don't know. Um, But he said you you manifest the body that allows you to express the full potential of what your consciousness has, has awakened to at that point. And the point at which the body that you're in no longer can serve either either to express or the process of continuous expansion, then you give up that body and you manifest whatever body you need that will, that will allow you to do it. And it's, it's easier to see it in the animal world because you can see that some of those incarnations are more limiting than others. In the book... Ask Asha, which is a, that small green book that um, only a few people read, but more people ought to because it's really quite good, um, in which I actually answered actual questions. There's, I mean, I say that because it's, just, it's full of very interesting information for such a small book. Um, but one of the questions I, was, I received, and part of what makes that book dynamic is I didn't pose intellectual questions. I actually received questions from real people and answered them. So there's a, there's a real living dynamic to it. 
It's not like, oh, I'll just write an essay about. So one of the questions was this woman who had had a Great Dane dog that she was very devoted to, but then various things happened in her personal life and she had to move into an apartment which was too small for the dog or she had to change cities, I don't know. But in any case, somewhat against her will, she had to give up the dog. She gave it to another family and somehow or another it didn't work out. And eventually that family had to euthanize the dog. So she was just, you know, eaten up with guilt over the fact that that's what had happened to this pet that she'd felt an enormous bond with. And of course there's a lot of stages in that, which I, I'm not going to repeat the whole book, but there's a lot in there, one of it being you know, we falsely extend the life of these pets and then we're in the awkward position of also having to determine their death because we've, to a very large extent, interfered with what might happen in a spontaneous way. Um, The second point I said was don't even think for a minute that we're actually in charge of anybody's life and death, even a dog's. It just, it may appear that way, but that dog would not give up that body until it was the right thing for it to do. And we personalize this and imagine that the dog has a commitment to its individuality. Even if you experience its individuality, it doesn't identify and have the same commitment that we have to it. And it doesn't suffer. It suffers for our sake. This is how Master put it, not for its own. For its own, it's just part of the flow. But the real point of this was, I said to her, I'm sure it was nice being that great Dane, and I'm sure when the dog was with you, you had some good times together. But really, think about it. Like, what is the potential of being a dog? Like, how far can you go? How often can you chase the stick and then bring it back and be so excited and then run out and pick it up again? I mean, at a certain point, you must, the anguishing monotony of it just must be unbearable. I was talking to some friends about service dogs, dogs that get to be trained to help people. And I actually had this realization it must be such a relief for those dogs to actually have meaningful work instead of spending all their time just frittering it away with trivialities. I mean, why wouldn't they feel that way? And also, yeah, it's been great being a dog, but is there nothing else? So when you're released from that form, it's not necessarily a curse. It may be just, oh, now, especially if an animal has had close association with humans which quickens its evolution. If it doesn't have to hunt and kill small creatures and tear things apart with its teeth, you know, if it gets to live at a more refined level, it it can be quite ready to go on. But that's the fundamental thought. So the evolution is not... See, people think of evolution as material, that, that there used to be dinosaurs and now there's this, and there used to be these creatures and now they've become these creatures, as if the evolution was from the outside. But the evolution is actually the individual jiva operating in a certain limited system, reaching the, the awareness potential of that limited system, shedding that form, and then picking up a form that allows it to keep evolving. What would be the actual benefit to anyone that the forms keep changing? Because the forms are not consciousness. The forms are only manifested through consciousness. I've mentioned, you know, several different times the, the uh, quadruplets that 
all came into one womb and, ma- and made that egg behave very differently, broke it into four pieces. It wasn't the egg breaking into four pieces, it was four jivas causing it to break. And so when there's a limited form of an animal, let's say, and then there's a more advanced form of the animal, it's not the animal that has evolved, it's the opportunity for individual consciousness to have a higher form. And this gradual evolution and its extinction of planet of, of animal life and of plants, you know, I know it's not very politically correct to not be concerned about the extinction of species, but the fact is, as the vibration of the planet changes, especially in the accelerating transition periods upward moving that we're in, a lot of species are going to go extinct because they're not going to be in harmony with where we're going. I, I mentioned this before when Swami talked about the alligators in the Everglades and people were working so hard to get them back again. And I know there's an ecological system that has to be respected. But he said they're cruel, you know, un- un- uh, unkind creatures he said, why would we want to have more of them? You know, they're, they're leaving the planet because the planet doesn't want to have that kind of bestiality. And so many uh, species that went away, went away because the whole planet was changing. They have, you know, they uncover the uh, mastodons and other big creatures that were quick frozen with even fresh herbs in their mouth because of some cataclysmic event to the planet. But either there's an intelligence behind all these events, or or we're really in big trouble. So even just something like that happening is that the planet itself, which is also a conscious being, needs to shift itself, which is probably going to happen again, as Swami put it, the the um, the rhythm of the planet is much slower than that of human beings, but once it makes a move, there's not much that the human being can do about it. And so we've been in a, a more or less abusive relationship with our planet for quite a long time. And if you want to personify it, you know she's been very patient. But there will reach a point where it'll be a tipping point. At least that's what Master said that there will be cataclysmic events, which we're seeing, with storms and fires and uh, volcanoes, earthquakes. But it hasn't yet reached the point where the whole planet is affected. But, but people are just beginning to have these different realities. Can we really live on the seacoast? You know, are some of these places really habitable? Are we really going to be able to grow the same food that we have been growing? Are we really going to go into famine because... A whole agricultural system is based on rain and the rain doesn't come. You know, all of these things. But that's the planet striking back or just adjusting itself depending on how you think about it. So when he says that evolution is only a suggestion in the mind, I suppose if you say it's a suggestion in the mind, it just means it's an idea that we have in our own heads. It's not really happening. And also, the other point here is that In God's consciousness, there's no evolution, no change, no progress. It is always and everywhere the same one reality. Well, that comes back 
to the absolute stillness of one. I mean, all of this change has to be in duality. There's no way that you can have change unless you have duality. Swami used to to do this, which I still can't repeat. I must have heard him do it 25 times and I still don't understand it. He would try to explain time and the transcendence of time by this barren planet on which nothing happens. I can go about that far. The first time he thought of the image, he was so excited about it and he thought it was so perfect and communicated everything. And so far, I've never been able to understand it. I just can't quite grasp it. But I do get the fact that duality, that there's, there's stillness and there's one, and then the own vibration moves. But when we begin to get back to our own center, the extremes of that duality begin to diminish. I mean, even, you know, the difference between me and you and me and the rest of the world and um, India and America and dark-skinned people and light-skinned people and Buddhists and Zoroastrians. I mean, all of the differences that people love to accentuate, the closer you get to your own center, the movement is smaller and therefore the gap between the two realities is less. And we're not separating ourselves outside of it so much. I mean, the the craziness of our planet at this point is so many people are beginning to understand the oneness of things and then an equal number or seemingly equal number, a large number of people are, are trying desperately to keep emphasis on the differences. You know, the Taliban sweeps through and forces all the women back to the home and you know, takes away all their education because women and men are different and what works for men doesn't work for women. And yet there's this other vast force in which the even the, the clothes and the appearance of men and women are coming to the point where you, where you can't even distinguish as opposed to this enormous separation. So the closer you get to the, the reality of God, the less anything changes. And so when you finally come to the center point, everything is present. That's, that's what he's saying there. It's just the mind that imagines time in the reality of God. How could there be change in evolution? Because everything has always been and will always be. It's, it's not something you can think of with your mind, but it's very interesting. It's important because there's a lot of ideas that people just accept as true. And and oftentimes, even as devotees, we just kind of go on as if they were true. And it's necessary for us to exert sufficient willpower, awareness, and clarity of mind to be able to tell the difference from a commonly held misconception, no matter how widely it is and no matter how common it is, and actual, the, t- the actual teachings of self-realization. It's, it, and it, it sets us apart. I remember I was sitting once, this was many years ago, I was sitting in this wonderful Italian restaurant we used to go to in Sacramento sometimes. And I was there, I don't know why, but it was my friend Seba and I. And there was some bob that had descended upon us, and it was a per- perfectly ordinary worldly restaurant. It's just the food was really good, and we lived way out in the mountains, and it was a big treat to have a really good Italian meal. But I remember just sitting there with her. We were, she was in her 30s, I in my 20s. And I looked around, I said, you know, 
if the enormous difference in our perception of reality, our consciousness was really the word, if the gap between our consciousness and the consciousness of all the people in this restaurant manifested itself physically, we would look like, we would look like terrifying aliens to these people. It was just like everything about our worldview was so tangibly different than the people who were sitting around us. And we were just feet away from each other. And it, I didn't mean that in any prideful way. It was just apparent to me that we were on different planets, even though we were sitting a few feet away from each other. Now, of course, you can reverse that and say we're all children of God. But it was the difference in our point of view. So, so having Master point out to this that evolution is just a suggestion in the mind is also to remind us, let's, let's think about these things. Let's not just take them. You know, in our middle school, we teach the children all about the yugas. In our high school, which we've just started, you know, I was having a discussion with the director of the high school because um, they're going to a conference in the spring in Scotland called Climate Change and Consciousness. And it's very appropriate, especially for teenagers who have a lot of idealism and willpower, to try to direct their attention and their energy toward uplifting causes. But I don't feel you can teach teenagers about climate change without also teaching about the yugas. Because there is no solution to any of this unless you know where it's coming from and where it's going. Otherwise, you just give people a bunch of information and it, it turns them into drug addicts and depressives because what are they supposed to do with it? Or they get angry at the generations before. I mean, it, but if you get the yugas in there, then you realize, oh yeah, there's this real, there is a revolution. There is a change of consciousness needed. We do have a responsibility, but it happens in context. I mean, at least certainly speaking for myself at all ages of my upbringing until I met Swami and learned all this, it was just like, um, it was very terrifying is actually the only word I can think of because there was no there was no way I could find a resolution we, we have to have the courage to be radical in our thinking which sets us apart from fads you know it, at various times uh, Ananda's had to take unpopular positions or taken a popular position just because it's not worth it not to um, but not because it's a fad, but because in our own reality uh, we'll see it. I, years ago when there was a, an initiative on the California ballot to ban nuclear weapons, and there was a very strong and well-organized movement called Beyond War, that's what it was called. And actually it originated from Palo Alto. There was a, a woman who was a spiritual teacher. She was a very, I think she was, she and her husband both, but I think she was the main figure. She had a lot of integrity. But she activated this statewide movement to campaign against nuclear weapons. I don't know what, I don't think the ballot measure succeeded, and I'm not quite sure what the enforcement policy of it would have been. But their methodology was to scare the living daylights out of people by telling you, in a very calm scientific way, the effect of nuclear bombs if they fell here, who would die, how many would die, you know, if they retaliated. So it was, it was a grisly presentation. 
very sophisticated and very well done, but in the end, very grisly. And Swami's response was, he respected them because he he knew their sincerity. But he said, uh, if you're trying to create peace, fear is not a good tactic. You know, it's just that, I mean, that's really it. It's like, yes, this is your objective, but what is the actual problem? And how do you actually go in and really solve that problem? Which tends to make a lot of us uh, non-political in the traditional sense. Because, for me at least, I want to go up the ladder a little bit. I realize that we have to get the consciousness right and then the rest of it will work out. As as the line says in the Finding Happiness movie, if everybody everybody in the world lived the way we do it in Ananda, we wouldn't have any of these problems. And so that really is the solution. It's not just banding together in small communities. It's meditating and taking responsibility and recognizing our relationship to God. That's the, that's the real power. And once that happens, you're, you consume less, you're more harmonious, you're more willing to put out energy for the good of all. I mean, a lot of tangible behaviors result. So it's not just that everybody sits around chanting Om. Swami said some problems are rajasic. They're material problems. They're active problems. And they need rajasic material solutions. He said you can't just sit around and chant Om. You have to solve a rajasic problem on a rajasic level. It's so practical. You know, it's really, really, if there's garbage in the bottom of the sea, you've got to get that garbage out of the sea. You can't just chant Om and hope it'll go away. (laughs) But how you go about doing it is a whole other question. All right, any thoughts or questions? So, uh, just a couple of thoughts here. Um, uh, In the beginning, you mentioned that uh, the body that we choose is to uh, manifest the full potential of what is required in that. It it, it will enable us to express whatever the potential of our consciousness is. So, so this... Does this mean that it is always going upward in terms of our consciousness, or do we also take a dip sometimes? Um, through the animal level, this is what Master said, evolution is automatic. That uh, you can't, you can't, that's what he said. You, once you reach the human level, the human being has sufficient willpower and self-awareness to make decisions according to what it thinks is best for it. And since we are so often misguided as to what is actually in our best interests, at the human level, you can just not progress seemingly for an almost unlimited period of time. And and you can evolve upward and then get thrown backwards in terms of opportunities or if you misuse, if you, uh, like Swami talked about being uh, somewhere in India, it might have been in Calcutta, and he was suddenly surrounded by a group of beggar children. He said all of whom looked like beggar children, except one of them, who looked like a queen. And, and, and she was like just a child, he said, but the way she was begging, everything about her said, how did I ever end up here? And he said he saw in her that she'd had wealth, but had been very, very selfish with it, and therefore she got thrown, but she lost it all the good karma of, of wealth and comfort, she had um, lost it by her terrible actions. So now she was a beggar. 
Now, how long would she have to be a bee beggar before she learned? Who knows? Occasionally you can get thrown all the way back to the animal level. A master said, I think it's in this book, he says it, usually not for more than one incarnation. Swami tells the weirdest possible story, which he heard in India, which he admits is a super weird story. I think it was somewhere in Tibet. A young villager woman is just walking across a field and all of a sudden an old lama accosts her and tries to persuade her to have sex, sexual relations with him. He tries to insist. She's completely freaked out, starts screaming and runs home to her parents and then tells them what happened. They say, if such a holy person you know, wants to have relations with you, it would be a great honor to our family you know, and we mustn't offend him. And so they go back and the you know, the father says, if you want my daughter to be your consort, here she is. And he says, oh, no, he said, I saw that a, a, a lama, a fallen lama, was about to incarnate and I was trying to give him a human birth. He said, but in the meantime, he entered the womb of the donkey over there. Yeah, it's like weird. What a weird story. But you know, this is, uh, it's all quite conceivably true. Just the, there it was because he could see it all happening and the, the Lama had the bad karma to have to go all the way to the animal level and the good karma to have a friend who was going to try to help him and the bad karma that the friend couldn't help him. But Master said, usually you'll, you'll learn your lesson fast enough. So you are a donkey, let's say, but it's hard to understand, but some part of you knows that you're more than this. Master said, you can, if you're really evil, you can, quote, get thrown back to the level of being a germ. Like, what? You've been a human being and now you're a germ? But, but what, we're ha what happens when you're a human, which is distinct from the Great Dane, the Great Dane cannot objectify his experience, reflect on it, and make conscious decisions based on his discrimination. As to, I mean, they can, it's not that they can't learn. But they, they're not able to objectify their own experience to the extent. You have to have a certain level of ego evolution. And the human body also has this vast, unused potential, which is a great, great deal of our brain is not used, which doesn't make any sense to materialistic scientists. But what it is, is that the human nervous system is capable of infinite awareness. And that's what makes human beings the highest animal is because there's no other animal on our planet or in, that, that has a nervous system capable of perceiving infinity. And so a dog has to give it up. And then, of course, let's have the weird stories of Ramana Maharshi, who there was a cow, the cow Lakshmi, that he said he had moksha. So there's a Mahasamani Mandir to the cow Lakshmi. And I believe there's also a crow. And Lahiri Mahashaya said in one of his diaries, that he was working on a technique for liberating animals directly without the necessity to go through the human level. So there's a great deal we don't understand. Yeah? Anything else? So that's why we should make very good use of our incarnations and not just squander them. Okay, number 313. This is uh, Yogananda speaking. My master, which would be Sri Yukteswar, 
used to refer wryly to the many responsibilities I would have someday. I answered him with a laugh. You don't have to rub it in. I know all about it. (laughs) It gives you, just that little vignette gives you such a picture of how he actually related to Sri Tishore and how convivial they were. I was talking to someone today about how what we imagine saintly people to be like is not really what they're like. What they are is they become so relaxed and so at ease and so comfortable with what goes on with them that they're they're sort of more like us rather than less, even with all of that. And uh, Swami Kriyananda put it this way, in, at the end of his life, especially when when the, the ark was really was really moving up like this, the ark of recognition and reverence and so on, he said, uh, "The older I get, the more I see the myth of Kriyananda swirling around me." He said, created by other people's responses. Meanwhile, he said, in the middle, I'm just the same old guy, is how he put it. Same old fella, that's what he said. But it, it was like, he, he just, you, you, the, the, to be saintly is to become more and more at ease and more and more unconcerned and more and more childlike and humble. And paradoxically, as that consciousness expands, there's also this aura that becomes tangible around which causes a, a, a reverential response on the other side where you're feeling less and less involved in all of that. I mean, the way, the way Swami explained it, the way Master was. So here's Master with Sri Yukteswar, and they have a job to do together. And Sri Yukteswar enjoys the fact that he just gets to live in his little ashram there in India, and he doesn't even have to fix the roof or clean the, the building. And Master's going to have to go out and spend all this time so involved. And it's just kind of a joke between them. At one point, Master says, and it might be in this book or elsewhere, he says, Lahiri was really lucky because his his whole incarnation was in a very peaceful period. Master said, I had to live through three wars. Yeah, I mean, three wars for a consciousness as sensitive as as a Master's where, where there's so much suffering around it, he had to take that on. But it wasn't Lahiri's destiny to have to um, exist in that vibration. And, but he says, like, oh, you're so lucky, you get all the good assignments. You know, that's what it sounds like. I don't know how to think about it. But it, it's also here. You don't have to rub it in. I'm fully aware of it. <laughs> I remember in one context, I said something about you know, having been away from Ananda village for so long. And uh, I, I, I just made some reference. I, the actual phrase I used was, I live out in the spiritual boondocks, is what I called it. Oh, yes, yeah, Swami said. And he just laughed, you know, like, better you than me, kind of a feeling. But it was the same thing. Yeah, this is my assignment. And you know, if I had a choice, I would live in a, uh, in a 100% an environment that was 100% my own. But I don't have a choice, so what difference does it make? You know, you can observe such a thing, but then so what? And that's what Master's saying. Don't rub it in, I know what I have to do. It's great fun. These are things that 
the reason these ideas are important, and I'll stay with this for just a minute, you know, over the years, especially when Self-Realization Fellowship was suing Ananda, we had to be in this constant oppositional relationship. And even this book that I've written about Swami, it is impossible to write about Swami's life without also, and from start to finish, I didn't really decide that it would be that way, but it had to be that way. His relationship to SRF and its leaders was a defining force in the way his life worked out and his relationship to Master. And when I was involved for the 12 years of litigation that we were in, and I often had to speak, and I often had to be very strong, it's because I realized how, how very, very detrimental it is to sincere devotees to present Master in a false light. And there, there are many false lights that I feel have become the way Master is presented, but one of them is he, he, he becomes two-dimensional. The, the movie Awake helped a little bit because you began to see it, it wasn't... The movie wasn't enlightened enough to really tell you what you needed to know, but at least told you that Master's life was not all smooth sailing. Because if you think to be spiritual means it's all smooth sailing then when it isn't for you, then you don't know what to do with yourself. And if you don't have the example of, of not, I mean, who, what good is an example that says if, you, if you're in tune with God, you'll never suffer and nothing will ever happen to you? Because we suffer and a lot happens to us. So when you see that an avatar, and this is I'm, because I'm talking about my book, I've been thinking about it again. I mean, I chronicled Swamiji's life experience because the, the perfection of his example was, was, was how he responded not the fact that he was forced to respond because that's what it is to be a spiritual person is to live in this world and know how to relate to it not to live in this world and be spared the necessity to relate to it you see how different that is and if everybody who's spiritual is just pious and unnatural all the time, then what happens to me? What happens when I can't do that? I just end up either being hypocritical, um, suppressed, or I have to run away because I think I can't be on the spiritual path. So the authenticity of the example, it's, it's a very, very delicate and complicated dance. Um, but little things like this between Swami and Sri Teshwar, and even my asking Swami, did you ever tease Master? You know, it's just like, it's a good question. Like, how did you really relate? What is the, the way that you really relate? Of course, you have Gyanamata and Rajasi who behaved in ways that, I don't know, I, I couldn't. I'm not that advanced. It's, it's fascinating. And it's all worth meditating on. Okay, questions or comments before we go on? Number 314. Bernard told me something from which others struggling toward inner victory might find encouragement. Bernard said, Master once said to me, I don't ask you to overcome delusion. All I ask is that you resist it. 
which is a really interesting point. And to overcome it is, is actually, in a very real sense, beyond us to do. When one is finally freed from a difficult test, it never, at least to my experience, it never feels like I have accomplished it. It feels like God liberated me from that. But the liberation is the result of the steadfast determined to resist it. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that you, that you look good. <laughs> it just means that some part of you is, is holding the ideal that even if this is how I behave, I refuse to define myself by it. I refuse to surrender completely to my worst qualities. Some piece of me, even if I'm fully engaged in whatever behavior I shouldn't be, whether it's an, uh, an outward involvement in unwholesome ways of behaving or an inner rebellion against right ways of behaving, um, you, there's, if, if, if some part of you simply recognizes that this is not ideal and even though this is what I am doing, um, I'm not going to do this forever. And, and I don't want to keep doing this. The, the little phrase that I came up with, just that has always helped me, is that I may commit certain actions, but I'm not committed to them. <laughs> and so, and then I can make a distinction, because I am doing it. I can't say that I'm not, or thinking it, or not doing it. You know, not following through with whatever it is I'm supposed to do. But I'm not committed to it. This is not where my willpower is really dedicated. This is merely something that I don't have the power to overcome, but I will still solidly resist it, even if you're reduced only to the mental resistance. And the mental resistance may just be, I refuse to define myself by this. I mean, that's a form of resistance, is I refuse to define myself by this, which is, see, paradoxical, because you may become a total embarrassment to yourself and your ideals. And then Satan will try to persuade you that you're lost and you really need to define yourself now by as somebody who failed. But resisting is merely to say, even if only mentally, I recognize the fact that I'm behaving in this way. I recognize the fact that anybody who looked at me would think that I'm drunk in the gutter, but I'm not. I'm actually a disciple of a great master going through a bad period. (laughs) And even that much... Um, is the the raft over the ocean of delusion in the end. Yes. So I sometimes wonder that is it not a form of ego identification that I am the disciple of a great master? No, because that which liberates you from ego is not ego. Okay. Very well, yeah. Yeah, that's the right answer to that. Is the desire for God just another desire that has to be overcome? No, because the desire for God is the end of all desires. And so the core of desire will be cut by that desire. So, uh, the reason why I was uh, wondering or sort of confused by it, that there are, there are stories in Mahabharata where Arjuna is very proud that I am 
the disciple of Drona and how you can, you know, you dare do this and how you dare challenge me in the war because I am a disciple of Drona. And that's very full of himself kind of a statement no, from where I see no, it. No, no, humility is self-honesty. Okay, that's, that's Master's definition of humility. These are, these are one of these things where it gets very subtle. Master said, humility is self-honesty. If Arjuna is a disciple of Drona and knows himself to be absolutely the best archer in the world, it's not ego simply to say that. It becomes ego when his happiness depends on being the best archer, when he thinks because he's the best archer, he's somehow more a child of God than anybody else is when he thinks because he's a disciple of Drona, it justifies a dharmic action. Um, and also to say, I'm just weak, I'm nothing, I'm helpless, I'm such a terrible person, I'm always a failure. That's not actually humility, because that's an exaggerated sense of your terribleness. So it's, if you're, but if you're just honest, you're detached, because facts are facts. And, and your humility comes from, well... If you're a disciple of Drona, it's like the greatness of God, the, 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 the good karma that was required even to do that, you know, the fact that it's only by the grace of my guru that I have these skills at all. There's, I mean, there's, there's other truths that, uh, put, that keep you in, in tune, but, but lack of truth does not keep you in tune. Swami Kriyananda was like that. He would often have these satsangs in which he would just enumerate for us all the things that he'd accomplished. Oh, the books he'd written and the music he did and then he did these lectures. And people just would think he was just a flaming egotist, just making lists and lists of his remarkable accomplishments. But he would just say what he was actually really trying to tell us is you, you put your attention at the spiritual eye and you ask Master to help you and Master will help you. None of his talks I have heard that he mentioned those things without mentioning that God is the doer and how uh, how it was all the grace of his guru. That's so, right. So, so he, he, he didn't simply say that, oh, by the way, I have written over 100 books and 400 exactly. pieces of music and that's exactly. it. But he would also say, this is a great book. You know, many people will come to God through this. I think this book will change the world's perception of master. He would say very powerful things about the things that had come through him. And in a sense, he would, he, and we know different times when I talked to him about it, basically, if you can't say that it's a superb piece of work, you should keep working on it till it is. <laughs> you know, but when it is, it simply is. Yeah. The uh, definition of self-honesty is... Uh, Humility is, is, is self-honesty. Yeah, is helpful. It's It's a... Another one of those things that's tremendously helpful because it allows you to behave properly. You can tell, oh, in this situation, I really do know what needs to happen and I need to step forward and assert my knowledge. It's not ego to do that. It's just that I am the one who knows and I need to do it now. And I need to do it emphatically. I mean, I'm just using it as an example. Emphatically, unequivocally. No, I know what needs to happen here. Go along with me. You know, or no, we're not going to do it like that. We're going to do it like this. That's not ego if you're just doing it because impersonally you know it's true.
And simultaneously, you might be in a situation where I know perfectly well what's supposed to happen, but I don't think it's mine to do. I think I just need to sit here and watch the catastrophe because it's because you're not attached to it. You're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it for what's trying to happen. When we were in the Bertolucci lawsuit, since I brought this up, the the um, um, character assassination lawsuit, absolutely everything went wrong for us. Absolutely everything. Nothing went right day after day after day. And Swami said, one, one wonderful morning, he says, the law of averages says that at least some things will go right for you. <laughs> he said, when absolutely everything goes against you, you know the Divine Mother is doing what she wants to have done. He didn't take it personally. It was just like, huh, isn't this interesting? No matter what we try, it just comes out terrible for us. Well, I guess she has a plan. And it's just when you're just humble in the reality of things, then, well, there it is. We'll see. All right, let's take a little break. Okay, we were talking a little bit during the break about humility and self-honesty and it's really a point that's worth focusing on. Um, the thing about Master's teachings of self-realization, especially the way Swami Kriyananda has articulated them, because Master put out the principles and then Swamiji drew from those principles very practical application. That's why he has books about marriage and architecture and educating children and creativity and just, you know, just on and on money. Because if these basic principles are true, then how do I live them? And what does it look like? If self-realization is the goal, if meditation is the practice, if God is the reality, how do I then have a career, raise a family, live a happy life, be healthy? It's just because now, in this ascending uh, Dwapar Yuga, we have to do all those things. We don't just get to not participate, which from some people the idea of not participating looks like a tapasya. For other people, having to participate is a tapasya. I made reference to, even though on many occasions I've commented that in the context of Ananda, when we speak of Ananda village, which is our first and largest community, um, it's in a rural area. And it's a complete village in itself. It's, a, it's an entire life that you can just live right there. And um, anybody who lives there is going to be at least to a large extent in tune with these teachings. And I mean, it's a marvelous society. I remember vaguely um, when I lived there for many years, January 5th is Master's birthday, May 19th was Swami's birthday. I was always surprised that the banks were open and the mail was delivered on those days. <laughs> Because within our little community, everything would stop. And we would have our own, you know, we had all our own holidays. We, and the, on the other side, you know, I would be totally surprised by Lincoln's birthday or something. It just, like, there would be no, and the whole, to, even just to keep track of daylight savings time, it was always a really big deal to be sure that we all noticed when it happened. And we were just so far outside of, and on one hand, of course, I absolutely loved it absolutely love that I lived that way for 16 years um, but ashram life you know uh, to, to withdraw into an ashram is a particular kind of spiritual life that has a tremendous power and tremendous positive potential and just 
is totally fun. The, the alternative, I mean, and it, uh, Ananda Village is not quite contemplative, so we're not really talking about act, exactly active and contemplative. It's more like ashram versus what I call missionary station, where what we're doing here in Palo Alto and in all our urban centers is, you know, the church from which these classes are broadcast for those who watch it is right on El Camino, which is the main street in Palo Alto that runs the whole length of the peninsula through all these cities. Literally, tens of thousands of people drive by and see this church every day. And we have a community, but it's five and a quarter acres. And as soon as you step off of it, you're just here, which the here of where we happen to live is absolutely fabulous. Narayani and Shurjo just moved to Mumbai, and they have a little flat on the fourth floor of a building. And as soon as they step out of that building, they're in Mumbai with everything. And then they go whatever distance they go to their the little center they've opened in Car West. K-H-A-R, I asked, I said, how do I tell people where it is? Well, that's where it is. But they have their little place, but the rest of the time they're surrounded by the world doing its thing. And you have to be in that environment if you really want to communicate with people. You can't expect everyone to come to your isolated ashram. And for my temperament, because I'm eager to share... I like to have more people around who um, are interested in what I have to offer and don't already know it. So much as it's, you know, it creates a conflict, a certain conflict in my own nature because on one hand I love that isolated, unified life and on the other hand, what would I do with myself in that environment? Now, I had a purpose for saying all that so let me try to remember what it was. Oh dear. We were talking about humility and self-honesty and finding the threads. Well, I'm going to have to just shift because I've lost the point of why I was saying that. But when I, I've, I was talking about Master and Swami's teaching, oh, Swami just talking about taking the principles and, and showing us how they can be used everywhere. But merely because we have an idea of that does not mean that the effort to do so is, is a straight shot you know, just from here to the end of the race. It's a wild zigzag obstacle course and you just get some little piece of it all organized and then you get blindsided from somewhere else. And um, the, the ego is a very sneaky fellow and he just kind of creeps in. You just get it all settled and you really think that you've, you know, you've mastered a certain thing and then from another angle it begins to come on you. And what happens to you is not so much that you become free of, 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 of succumbing to temptation but you begin to, to have enough experience to be able to know what it feels like when you're beginning to lose ground during the break I was mentioning this was many years ago back in the mid-70s we were doing a series of fundraising projects and different people were in charge of different ones and the people, other people who had been quite successful in their efforts and then it was my turn to manage the project and my, pre- my premise was I wanted to do as well or better than the people. I got competitive. And as a result, I made very bad decisions, and my particular phase of it was not at all successful. And afterwards, Swami said to me, in a very companionable way, but very definitely, he said, oh, Asha, whenever your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. And it, I was honest enough, to realize that, yeah, from the very beginning of that project, 
I wasn't really trying. I was comparing myself and wanting to look better. And as a consequence, everything that followed after that was, was tainted by my confusion. I couldn't be in tune because I had asserted my energy. And it, it was unfortunate. It wasn't catastrophic. But of course, when he pointed that out to me, and I, he pointed it out to me because I was ready to hear it, it just like, oh yeah, I knew what that felt like. And so when that, that feeling returns again, I'm not by any means always able to just snuff it out, but I can at least resist it. And I can at least tell that if you continue in this direction, it's not going to turn out well. Or I can at least do my best to mitigate the impact of it. And that's the self-honesty. And I was saying also during the break, these are, it's worth repeating here, is in my early years I had so many really crazy ideas. Um, the first one was there were two people in my life, two women who were friends of mine that I spent a lot of time with, one of whom I got along with just wonderfully well. We were absolutely soul sisters. And the other one, we were karmic enemies. So I was constantly aware of the incredible discrepancy between these relationships. And I said to Swami one day, I said, you know, the problem is not so much that I dislike this one, it's that I love this one so much. So if I love this one less, then it wouldn't be... That was when he said, that's really the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and he said, you know, those kinds of spontaneous love relationships are given to us so we will understand our own potential. It's, it's a little bit like the question I was asked earlier. The desire which frees you from desire is, not a bi- is good. So the capacity to love very deeply is given to us by God so we can recognize our potential. And then, of course, we have to refine it so that it becomes more and more unselfish. But we will be motivated to become more and more unselfish if we love very deeply. If we don't love deeply, we'll never be motivated to be unselfish. That's why the desire to have children is so strong in people. Because having children is often the place and many parents will say this to you, men and women, I never knew what love was until I had a child. And my friend, one of my friends, who's a very dedicated yogi, um, he was on the spiritual path for maybe 15 years before he married and had two children. And he said to me, he said, I was a selfless guy, you know, you know me, I was, I was serviceful and I was, I was a pretty selfless guy, he said. But when my sons were born, I realized that I had no idea what selfless was. He said, because when my sons were born, I ceased to exist, he said. I mean, in his own heart. It's like everything was about those boys. That was that. And and suddenly he saw what it really meant to be selfless. Greater can no love be than this, than we're willing to sacrifice everything for the welfare of others. You know, that's a real, that's the fourth and last stage of the soul's long journey. That's way way out there. So we have to come to it a little at a time. And that's where self-honesty comes from. We just find out who I am. And we get pushed. We get pushed. And then you're very much at ease with yourself. You have nothing to prove. I'm good at this. I don't have to prove it. Because a lot of arrogance... A lot of arrogance is often trying to cover up insecurity. Either 
because one actually knows one isn't competent or because one knows that the dependence on that external definition for my happiness makes me so vulnerable that I just don't know what to do with myself. I was heart sick at uh, uh, what I saw in one of the private schools in this area. When we were just starting our school, we did a little bit of visiting around to some of the uh, well-respected private schools. This was when we were starting our elementary school, so this was many years ago. And a lot of schools, and I I don't want to sound arrogant, I'm just going to be humble and honest. (laughs) We actually have observed through the years that oftentimes we'll start saying things and then other schools will pick them up. Because we're a little ahead of the curve. You know, so like self-worth and not self-esteem because we don't use those words, but just building up a child's sense of his own true, true potential and true nature. So it's very popular to say that you're doing that now. So you have a half an hour a week of self-esteem class, you know, sort of things like that, which we sort of laugh. is like, you don't like have a class in which everybody gets together and develops their self-esteem. It's the entire culture of the school. How is it developed? You know, who are... Because of our teaching and our practices, we're able to actually deliver on these ideas with children in a way that other very well-meaning places, they simply don't know how. Or the teachers themselves do not have the capacity to relate to children as souls, which is where it really comes from. So coming from this, we went to one of these schools and they were talking this was, they had their weekly class on self-esteem. I, I, it, I might be making that up, but I actually think that's what it was. You know, for 45 minutes every Friday morning, they worked on their self-esteem. So they had a, a tree, you know, the outline of a tree. It was a, it was a bulletin board display. And there was this big tree, and, each, and the children had pasted leaves on the tree and, and their, their names and a little something was written on the leaf. And it was, their, it was their, I think it was called their self-esteem tree, if I'm not mistaken. And so the children had all pasted leaves on, describing the basis for their self-esteem. There were 40 leaves on the tree, and we looked at them all. With one exception, every single one had to do with an outward achievement. You know, I got a perfect score on my spelling test. I, I did the winning goal. None of them had to do with character and none of them had to do with actual inner development except one which said, I'm not as moody as I used to be, which spoke to self-mastery. But every other one was an outer accomplishment. So we're, we're, we're not only not training them correctly, we're actually training them to get their self-worth from outside themselves on the basis of success that is competitively measured. You know, either their own test scores or winning against other teams, which just sets them up for their first time that something doesn't go their way. There's, they have absolutely nothing behind it. And it's all based on privilege and, and talent, 
which is set up to say that you will get into Harvard, then you will get that job at Google or Apple, and then you will rise up the ranks. But what if you don't? It's just, there's nothing behind it. So the path that we're on just, you know, completely goes to the heart of the matter. And everything, when I first really understood, which I understood very quickly because of my karma, what what self-realization was offering, and even more profoundly what Swami was offering, it was just the thread that runs right up the middle. And it doesn't mean that I could always be, be with it because <laughs> I have veered away from it wildly. But as soon as you realize that you've veered away from it, the fact that it exists absolutely saves you. Because once you realize that you're not where you want to be, you just have to look around and find that center again, whether you're looking inside yourself, whether you're looking at the altar, wherever it is, but it's there. I mean, just think what that really means. It's like, I've been on this path since I was... Well, I've been on, on the path since I was 19. I'm, I've known Swami since I was 22. And I have never found a question that couldn't be answered. I've never faced a dilemma that I couldn't eventually sort out for which the path of self-realization, as Swami has articulated it, Master's teachings, didn't have an answer. And I'm pretty aggressive. So, you know, it's not because I didn't ask the question. I mean, really, that's quite a statement, isn't it? I'll give one last piece to that and then I'll let it go. I met a, a woman, she was a Stanford student over here, and we had a very strong karmic connection. This is after I was here. She started coming for a while. And we recognized each other and it was, it was very sweet. I was very fond of her. And she was very drawn to this path, but she was also very afraid that if she got on this path, she wouldn't get the other things that she wanted, which was a home and a husband and children and many other things. And she, she thought it was, I couldn't, I couldn't persuade her that if you follow the central truth, then all these things shall be added unto you. So she eventually went away. But she asked me a very, we had a very interesting exchange, what I thought was very important. She asked me at one point, because she was trying to assess her future, she asked me if I was happy. I said, well, I mean, yes, but everybody's, almost everybody you ask, very few people will say, no, I'm miserable. People will defend their choices. Are you happy that you gave up your career to raise us children, mommy? Oh, yes, I'm happy I did it, you know. <laughs> Are you happy that you've had to work in that dead-end job all the time in order to support your family? I mean, it's hard for people to say, no, it's been a catastrophe. So I said, that's really not even the best question. I said, here's a question that I will answer. When I was growing up, I was very idealistic. Just very idealistic. And I was part of a generation which we were very idealistic. But many of those idealistic people eventually became stockbrokers and congressmen, other things like that. And I said, in all my life at Ananda, and it's true to this minute, I've had to come to a more clear and deeper understanding of the nature of my ideals, but I have never compromised. 
I've never had to compromise. I mean, even now as I think about it, that's extraordinary. My circumstances have never required me to compromise, and my principles have never tempted me to compromise. That's, you know, that's, that's quite something. And that, I think, is a truer statement of the nature of this path. Because you can't always be happy. Sometimes you have very, very difficult karma. So you can't just say, oh, this path makes me happy. But unless you define happiness as very different than that. This path makes you secure on a level that you literally can't imagine until you get to it. Makes you secure on a level that you literally cannot imagine until you have developed it to the point. And, and part of it comes because Master gradually dismantles all our calm assumptions and replaces them with unshakable truths. And it's not even slightly dogmatic. It's not dogmatism we're dealing with. It's experienced reality, which is, is completely... It's not sectarian either. It's just my favorite definition of Sanat Dharma is that which is. It's just, oh, yeah, Asha, when your ego gets involved, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> you know, that's not a dogma. That's, that's a, a fact. And there it is. And Swami says, I tuned into Master and I, look at me, I've written 400 pieces of music and 150 books or whatever he did. And I don't feel like I've done any of it. That's just a fact. The books are there and his freedom from involvement with it is also there. I mean, it's just security like you can't imagine. Okay. Any comments or questions before we stop? All right. That's it for tonight. And I, we did, we did more than one. What do you know? We did uh, 312, 313, and 314.